This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Just a couple of minutes ago, I said the words, the world is watching the U.S. election, and I still feel strange saying that. I said it yesterday. It just sounds overdramatic. But I still think that as overdramatic as it sounds, I still think that's true. But I'm not one to know. So let's invite somebody onto London Live who definitely has a better sense of just how closely the world watches the United States, especially at times like this. Mr. Jeremy Kinsman is a former Canadian ambassador who has served in the Canadian Foreign Service for over 40 years and has had a look at the United States from any number of different angles, has had a look at Canada from any number of different angles, and we're lucky enough to have him with us right now. Mr. Kinsman, thank you so much for taking some time for us. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. That's a lot of looks. (laughs) You know what? I, I feel weird saying the world is watching. How do you feel when you think about the U.S. election in 2020 in a global context? Oh, it's, uh, it, it is watching, without any doubt. I mean, uh, the United States has been missed on the world scene uh, as a positive force by those who believe in positive forces. Uh, their evacuation, uh, has their absence has been welcomed by those who believe in negative forces. Uh, so, yeah, everybody's uh, watching. Uh, I, I think that, uh, by and large, you you can expect that most of the democratic world, a couple of exceptions, uh, uh, really are hoping for a, a Biden a victory because uh, they know Biden, you know, and they trust Biden. They know Biden works from a playbook that's sort of, you know, fact-based. You're not arguing about the facts. You're arguing about your positions uh, from the basis of the same set of facts, which hasn't really been the case with the Trump administration. So, yeah, everybody's watching. I'll tell you who who also ought to be watching. There are a bunch of of guys out there, because they're all guys who are populist, nationalist, uh, authoritarian leaders who kind of model themselves after Trump. And uh, if Trump doesn't make it, uh, they're going to lose a little wind from their sails, you know. And I tell you, that's not a bad thing. So, uh, yeah, everybody's everybody's in this. We have seen that around the world where, you know, as much as there is a former reality TV show host as the president of the United States, we've seen other countries maybe elect someone who was famous in a celebrity sense. This is this is not, you know, this is not even new. Ronald Reagan was elected as a celebrity yeah. not too long ago. But what do you make of of that kind of that kind of move by a country these days if we do look around the world and and you do talk about people who are not necessarily going after the, your typical politician well i yeah there is that uh, i i think that uh, that 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 trump is certainly what what you described i mean he he is a master promoter he's a marketer okay and and he 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 wins if he wins uh, via his message to his tribe, to his people. He's deliberately a, a divisive politician. 
He divides the population. He, he separates away people who disagree with him uh, as being not even patriotic, you know. That's, that's what he does, and that, that isn't necessarily because he's had experience in television. It's because he has that kind of publicist, populist uh, uh, persona. Uh, and, and look, he's, he's good at it, you know. But the fact is, is that he he is a guy usually without a platform you know he uh, uh the republican party uh is the only uh, party in 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 some time not not even to put out a platform at its uh, at its convention it's all it's all promises and most of the promises are sort of backward looking and and that is that is what the the, the populists elsewhere uh, take up uh, they also take up uh, the the uh, the appeal to 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 a rural population. There's a rural urban split in every country, uh, just because people live differently, you know, and have different priorities. Uh, but uh, Trump exacerbates it, and uh, and so they they are very often. It doesn't matter where, whether it's Budapest or Prague or Warsaw, you've got people in the city don't think the same as people in the country, and so it becomes a divisive thing. Our politics tend to rely on people moving toward the center. You know, that's where compromise happens, and that's where, where democracy gets stuff done. Uh, and, and with a guy like Trump, uh, that's much harder. That's why not much is getting done. We are talking with Mr. Jeremy Kinsman, former Canadian ambassador, and looking at how things are playing out right now. Uh, Mr. Kinsman, are you... Are you looking at what four years under Donald Trump or four more years under Donald Trump might look like or what four years under Joe Biden might look like? Are you allowing yourself to picture either one of those roads yet? <laughs> oh, yeah. Through the night, I've kind of veered from one to the other, you know. I'm now back uh, just uh, – I may be wrong. Uh, I've, I've been wrong earlier, but I may, I'm now back to believing that, uh, that uh, Biden is going to win this thing by, uh, you know, the skin of his teeth. And, uh, uh, and it's going to be contested, uh, but but he he's going to emerge probably uh, I I think as the president, but but because the margin will be so so slight, and I'm not sure Democrats will win the Senate. Uh, the United States is going to be very focused for the next four years uh, on its uh, inward uh, issues, you know, uh, uh, it, it it and that's going to affect uh, how. Now, Canadian interest to some extent, um, even though we'd be happier with, with Biden, more familiar, and it does work from the same set of facts, as I said before, and, and he's not erratic, you know, but, but the fact is he's going to be very preoccupied by folks at home, and, you know, by America and things like that are going to be problems, but at least we'd be able to solve them. With, with Donald Trump, it's very hard to, to predict because his stock and trade is being unpredictable is being, uh, a, you know, bringing surprises always uh, to the table. Uh, it's how he's done deals, and uh, he's transactional. That's how he, he sees, uh, you know, uh, relations with uh, the rest of the world. And so it, it, more of that uh, is it's unfortunately going to unwind uh, even more of the fabric of, of the world's cooperative mechanisms. You know, it's 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 very much competitive nationalism, even on things like vaccines, you know, uh, and, and so that's not good. But but whatever, uh, Canada is going to have to uh, uh, look to itself, to to its own beliefs, uh, to to the the extent to which uh, 
we we you know have an identity and values and stuff that that are our own and 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 look to those who share them and uh, and i guess it'll be easier with biden than with trump as far as the united states is concerned but we still got to make it in the rest of the world We'll see how it plays out. It may take hours, days, weeks, like you say, could be contested. This could go on a long time. Mr. Kinsman, thank you so much for your insight. My pleasure, Mike. That's Jeremy Kinsman. And he was a member of the Canadian Foreign Service for 40 years and has served as a Canadian ambassador all around the world. So the idea of being in Moscow or being in Brussels or being in Rome and then looking back across the ocean and trying to see what impact the United States has on the rest of the world. It's always had a big impact since making its climb to a world superpower. And that divisiveness, that divisiveness that Donald Trump makes use of and has really, really allowed to flourish in the United States and then you know, that flourish carries over. Have we ever been more divided because of that? Because you have people who say, no, I'm a Trump supporter. Yeah, but you're Canadian. No, I'm not a Trump supporter. Yeah, no, but you're Canadian. But that's what we have. We have division because of it. And it is remarkable to see what that has done. And you look at that on a global scale and you think, Okay, how, how do you get back together? No one's ever going to sit around a campfire and hold hands and everybody sing Kumbaya. We're humans. We have different points of view. You're never going to get the entire world to sing that Coca-Cola song, like to teach the world to sing. That was a nice little commercial in the 80s. It's not going to happen. Never going to happen. But at least be able to stand beside each other. You don't have to sing but at least be able to be in the same room, at least be able to see the other person's point of view. We're losing that, and that's something that cannot be lost. That's something we cannot give up. So let's see how this turns out, but we may still have a long way to go and a lot of legal battles to decide the U.S. election. And at the end of it all, even with this mess, think back to hanging chads in 2000, no one's going to fix the Electoral College. No one's going to change it. Because whoever wins today won because they won the Electoral College. It's been that way since the 1700s. It's going to continue that way for far into the future, in my opinion, because nobody's going to risk, ooh, what if I change it and lose? Don't want to do that. Let's keep the broken system. I won with it last time. Maybe it happened. Well, here we sit, uncertain about what is happening in the United States. Is the picture getting any clearer? Well, you just heard Scott Monick say that the Trump campaign has asked the state of Michigan to stop counting, which puzzles me because... Donald Trump is not winning in Michigan at the moment. Anyway, I, I, there will be a lot of things that are strange in the next little while, I'm sure. So let's try and make some sense, place some context on some of what has been going on. Dr. Rob Goodman joins us, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration. 
as we look at the U.S. election. Dr. Goodman, thank you for coming back on to London Live. How are you? Considering I, I got to sleep really late last night, uh, refreshing my, uh, my needle sites and my Twitter, but I'm doing all right. Thank you. I wonder what it was like for just about anybody, because let's face it, we live at a time where our phones are a lot of things, including our alarms sometimes, so they're right handy, and there will be times during the night when you wake up, and I wonder how many arms kind of reached over. I know mine did at 2.30, and it did it again at 5, where I just kind of reached over, and I, I felt around, and I, oh, and I clicked, and I saw that there had been no decision, and then I kind of put things back down. How many hours did you sleep last night? What do you think the count was? Oh, boy, like on or off, six or seven. But like you said, it was pretty uh, interrupted. So I think a lot of us are in the same boat today. <laughs> We're talking right now with Dr. Rob Goodman, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. So, I mean... Bernie Sanders was able to somehow predict that this is the way it would work out. The fact that it is this close, Dr. Goodman, what kind of challenges can we expect over the next while because of how close the vote actually is? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is, I, I think it seems very likely that Biden's going to pull out a, a pretty um, narrow victory, but nevertheless a victory, given the states that he's leading in, uh, given the way the ballots are coming in. Um, that are uh, the result of absentee votes or um, mail-in votes. So I think Biden's going to be up. I think that's going to be a pretty durable lead. I think Trump is making some noises about trying to stop um, uh, vote counts or actually continue vote counts in places where he's coming from behind. He's not really consistent on these things. But I, I think the end result is going to be it's going to be difficult for Trump to challenge all of these results in all of the states that tend to be breaking Biden's way. So I think this looks like a pretty narrow win for Biden. Um, I don't think this is any kind of um, repudiation of Trump or, or what he stands for by an overwhelming majority of, of American voters. But at the same time, I think it's important to realize that it's very rare that an incumbent president gets voted out at all. Uh, and it looks like that's what's about to happen. You know, of course, there could be all sorts of um, um, attempts to manipulate the vote counts and all sorts of legal manipulation uh, over the next few weeks. But I think given the way things are continuing to break in Biden's favor, um, I still think he has to be a favored to be the next president. How seriously can those legal challenges be taken? I mean, they're there, the opportunity is there, but eventually, you know, does the Republican Party, if we do see a, a narrow Biden victory, does the Republican Party just say, look, you know what, we've looked at all the numbers, you know, we, we've had a recount or two, it still comes up this way, we just got to throw in the towel. We got to we got to admit this is it. We got to concede. Do you see it happening that way or in this case, maybe not? Well, I, I don't think those legal challenges can be taken seriously from any kind of legal point of view, uh, from any kind of point of view of honestly um, figuring out the intentions of the voters. I, you know, I think Trump has been utterly transparent that regardless of the results, um, you know, as he said uh, in the weekend before the election, first we're going to have election night, then we're going to send in the lawyers. And this has been... Um, his election strategy all along was to contest the illegitimacy of the vote. So I think it's going to be a test for the Republican Party whether they're going to throw him overboard and try to, to move ahead with obstructing a Biden administration or um, whether they're going to buy into Trump's strategy of, of delegitimizing uh, the outcome of the election. I think that's the thing to worry about is not so much the uh, court challenges and the legal challenges as the extent to which Trump and Republicans who continue to support him are able to 
propagate the message that something went wrong, uh, something was rigged, there were all these ballots that were found that were in favor of Democrats. You know, that, that's just transparently not true. And I think to their credit, social media places like Twitter and Facebook are trying to stamp out those lies about what happened. Um, but that still doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people in that closed-off ecosystem that are getting that message. So I think a lot of people might be getting the message that whatever the result is, is an illegitimate result. And that, that doesn't bode well for uh, any kind of Biden administration that we might see. U.S. President Donald Trump kind of sowed more of those seeds, even, what, about 2 o'clock this morning in, in saying, well, we don't want to see, you know, ballots found or votes found or something like that. It, it is an interesting strategy, to say the least, and whether or not it, it winds up with any merit, it, we, we have to know that things are taken seriously. And we've seen attorneys general and we've seen secretaries of state and they've all stood up and they've said, look, we, we count them. We, we do this. The process is here. We have to know that this is not some Mickey Mouse operation, right? Yeah, well, here, here's a really important thing to know that I, I don't think a lot of people have, have gotten very clearly yet, which is in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, uh, these absentee and mail-in ballots are counted last, even though they could be received before Election Day. Uh, that's not an accident. That's because Republican state legislators chose to make that the policy. At the same time, their presidential candidate was explicitly telling his supporters to vote on Election Day and not to vote by mail. So, of course, it's going to look like these Biden-leaning ballots are being discovered at the last minute, uh, because that's the way the system has been engineered to look. Um, that doesn't mean these ballots are illegitimate. They're entirely... Uh, they're entirely legitimate, just as much as a ballot cast on Election Day is. So if there's any kind of appearance that these states are swinging to Biden late in the game, well, keep in mind that that is how it has been designed to look in order to delegitimize the results. <laughs> and is that because you can look at the statistics and say Republicans, for whatever reason, come out in greater numbers to vote on Election Day, whereas Democrats are more likely to say, you know what, I'll, I'll take advantage of the mail-in balloting? Um, I don't know if that's true across the board in all elections, but in this election, it certainly has been. You know, that's been a consistent message from Trump that um, mail-in ballots and uh, absentee ballots are sources of fraud. They aren't. And he's been uh, explicitly encouraging his supporters to vote on Election Day. And I think part of that has to do with perceived risk around the coronavirus, uh, which is also polarized along partisan lines. So in most elections, I don't know if that split is true. But I, I, I think in this case, exit polls are really backing up the idea that Republicans disproportionately voted in person on Election Day and Democrats disproportionately voted um, before Election Day, either in early voting or in uh, mail-in voting. Um, and that's going to be seen in the way the results come in. You know, despite the fact that, that Florida um, is generally just a, a mess when it comes to election administration, I think this time they did it right in the sense that they get an early start on counting their early votes and their mail-in and absentee votes. So they were able to have um, a reliable set of results uh, pretty early in the evening. Uh, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, these other states could have done that. Uh, the fact that they are not doing that uh, was a deliberate decision by the Republican Party. We are talking with Dr. Rob Goodman, and Dr. Goodman is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration. You've had a, a really unique career already in that you have done some speech writing, and I'm fascinated to know, how do you handle a time like this if you are a 
presidential candidate, and at some point you're going to have to get to a microphone again, and you have to say something. What do you think the advisors and the speechwriters are saying to either Joe Biden or Donald Trump at this point to to let on? Well, I think that um, if I'm Joe Biden right now, I I want to uh, project confidence in the fact that the election is going well. And that for the most part, um, if votes continue to be counted, I'm probably going to come out ahead. I think the more difficult challenge is what happens if, as is likely, uh, we see Joe Biden as president and a Republican majority in the Senate. And, you know, th- this goes back to my experience when I was working on Capitol Hill. Um, I was there in, in the Obama years uh, working on Capitol Hill when you know uh, Mitch McConnell and, and um, congressional Republicans um, made a really um, you know, strategically smart but also pretty destructive decision that if they don't give the president support on anything, if, if they create gridlock and the president's not able to, uh, uh, to legislate to pass any laws, that's going to look bad for the president regardless of who causes it. Uh, I, I think that playbook worked really well for them uh, in uh, 2010 and subsequently, and I think they're going to run the exact same playbook. So if I'm Joe Biden, his communication staff, I, I'm going to be thinking about the fact that I know what play is coming. Uh, I know that I'm going to be facing um, um, incredible, uh, in- incredibly disciplined obstruction. And I have to figure out how to get my message across regardless of that fact. I have to figure out how to make it seem and and hopefully be as if I'm an effective president for for, for, for legislating, for responding to things like the people who are displaced and suffering as a result of this pandemic, uh, with the expectation that I'm not going to get any cooperation uh, from what looks like it's going to be a Republican Senate. Uh, It's a legislation problem, but it's also a communications problem, getting people to recognize where the obstruction is coming from, why uh, we're not getting any laws passed. That's what it's going to look like for the next two years, I think. Um, and I hope Biden has some smart people on his team thinking about that. Uh, if I'm Donald Trump, uh, my advice would be, just be uh, sit tight, don't tweet. Uh, you're probably just going to be digging a hole. Uh, Dr. Goodman, one last thing, and that is what it's been like for you living in Canada, watching this play out in the United States where you're from. Well, it's... Uh, it's stressful. Um, you know, it, uh, I, I, I have a lot of my uh, friends and family are there, and I would like to think that America was, was going to, you know, rise up um, in overwhelming numbers and repudiate, um, you know, I think is, is the racism and misogyny that are just raiding off this administration. And, you know, I'm speaking here as, as not just an academic, but as a, as a person who's, uh, who's experienced it and has, you know, family ties and, and friends who are experiencing these consequences and effects of the administration. And that didn't happen. I think we have to grapple with the fact that, um, you know, that this is, this is what America is. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't successfully get rid of Trump. It doesn't mean there isn't uh, hope for us to go forward. But it does mean that we have to grapple with the fact that a good chunk of our fellow Americans saw the last four years, um, saw 200,000 plus dead in a pandemic, and we're pretty much okay with it. And I think we really have to sit with what that means and figure out where to go from there. I, I wish I had an answer to that, but right now I don't. Well, Dr. Goodman, maybe we can talk again in a week or two when things are a whole lot clearer and when those questions certainly rise to the surface. We really appreciate the time. Thank you and keep safe. Uh, thanks so much for having me. That's Dr. Rob Goodman, Assistant Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration prior to An announcement from the Ontario government today. We'll have a lot of people in this province who are located 
outside of major centers and who do not have, let's call it, internet they can rely on, happy. Joining us right now is Mr. Peter Bethlenfalvy, MPP for Pickering Uxbridge and the president of the Treasury Board and part of this announcement today. Mr. Bethlenfalvy, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Mike. Well, let's talk about this and how it will play out. There has been a lot of talk going back months, even you know, even going back beyond that, about making broadband better in this province. What does this announcement today do that some of the other announcements maybe hadn't done yet? Well, uh, Mike, it's uh, and it's always great to be uh, with you again. Uh, you know, this there's about a million uh, for. So 1.4 million people that are in underserved uh, or not served markets uh, around Ontario. And what this does, this builds on our in existing investments and ups it uh, over uh, to uh, close to a billion dollars because it's imperative to connect everybody to provide more effective broadband and cellular. Uh, so this is a great day for uh, communities across Ontario. And I know your listeners in London and various parts of Ontario, you don't have to go very far where you get dead zones. And, you know, our world is now more connected. Uh, the world is online and government's got to be online. We've talked about that before. But this, this really uh, adds to the big investments that we've already made. So let's talk about how this works and in doing so, maybe when it starts to work. What's the how-to and the timeline on this? Yeah, it's a great question. So we have already started. It's called the Improving Connectivity in Ontario program, called ICON. Um, we got so much demand. That's why in the first phase, that's why we, we increased it. So the uh, the first wave is, is completed and we're reviewing all the applications. So this is the, part of today's announcement will be the second wave. We're doubling it. And uh, the way it works is uh, through the Ministry of Infrastructure, uh, municipalities, uh, regions, uh, various organizations uh, work with providers to come up with a, a request for funding uh, to put in, uh, you know, could be fiber or wireless or satellite, various forms of uh, technology. So we can reach more and more Ontarians because, you know, we, we put bridges and roads and tunnels and put the infrastructure in 100 years ago. This is the infrastructure of today's world, and we've got to get with it. And I guess I like to say what's changed a little bit is, Let's talk and more action. And so in terms of how long it may take before we see a, a noticeable difference, is there a way to describe kind of the, the big picture, the, the long-term timeline? Well, we're putting shovels in the ground. Uh, so uh, these funding investments will, will be starting uh, very soon in 2021 and over the next five years. So you're going to see these are targeted for shovel-ready broadband projects. So you start to see uh, very soon uh, shovels in the ground. And then we're going to continue. Even, even though we say five years, uh, we are going to continue because we, we need to, I think uh, we need to have, uh, you know, connectivity in the whole province. And uh, and more and more, you know, COVID's really revealed, Mike, um, how much, you know, being connected online is, whether it's uh, booking a doctor's appointment online, booking a Maybe a mental health. We're providing more and more mental health services online in this environment that's needed. We've talked uh, before about the a few weeks ago on this show about the digital wallet, you know, doing things that more convenient for farmers, being able to register your vehicle online instead of in line. Uh, so this, you'll see a lot of shovels start 
getting in the ground, building the, the fiber network, and it will continue not only over the next five years but beyond. And I guess the last question is almost a billion dollars is a lot to spend. I know it's one of those has to, but where do we find the money? Well, you know, that's a great question. Where do we find the money? This is this is capital. This is, you know, you say to yourself, well, we're building highways. We're building roads. Where do we find the capital? This is what, you know, the government does. And part of my job as president of the Treasury Board is make sure that the, with the taxpayer dollars that we have, that uh, we spend it wisely. And I think this is one of the wisest investments that uh, we can make uh, on behalf of taxpayers in the province. It's uh, it's going to connect us in so many ways. It's going to add to innovation and making life simpler and easier for, for individuals, for families. I mean, if you're a small business, uh, and we're, as, as I announced in our Ontario Action Plan a few weeks ago, on your show, among others, uh, you know, you, you're doing a lot of paperwork to set up your small business. Well, we want to make it easier so you can set up your small business, do it online, make it easier, do it digital. But you need the broadband and the wireless and the, the connectivity to be able to do that. So um, this is one of the, I think, smartest investments we could do. Well, we really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for this, and I know we'll be talking soon. You bet, Mike. Always great to be with you. That is Peter Bethlin Falvey, who is the president of the Treasury Board in the province, MPP for Pickering Uxbridge. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.